Today we are going to start a new series called Rise to the Occasion. Uh, Many of you, as you watched that video, you were thinking about where you were when you saw the 2013 national champions, the Louisville Cardinals, uh, take it all. And I think that there are some great parallels between a winning team and a winning church. When we look at what made the University of Louisville, U of L, a championship team this year, there are some principles, some things that were very important. And if they had not had those principles, if they had not had those things happening, they would not have been champions. Even as we think about U of L, there was something on the inside of most of us just that made us connect with them so well, that, that made us want to celebrate and see every game, that made us so excited because we want to be a part of a winning city. We want to be a part of winning families. We want to be a part of a winning church. So what we're going to do through this series is we're going to look at how the, what the Bible has to say about the church. The universal church, the church that is spread all around the world, but also local churches. And as we look at what the Bible says about the church, we will see that the principles that the Bible lays down for a successful church is is very parallel to the principles that's laid down in order to have a successful team. So today we're going to go to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to look at verses 16 through 20. And we're going to look at a a principle that we need if we are going to be, Forest Baptist Church is going to be a winning church. If we're going to be the church that God wants us to be, designed us to be, and we'll see that God is going to call us to rise to the occasion and be faithful to what he's laid out. Matthew chapter 28, please stand to your feet, and we'll look at verse 16 through 20. What you hold in your hand is the precious, authentic, and inherent, inerrant, sufficient, all-inspiring word of God. God breathed these words through man by his spirit so that the church wouldn't have to guess what her role and her, her job is what her identity is, but so that we as a church would know what our Lord and our Savior expects from us and empowers us to do. So glad that he doesn't expect something from us that he won't empower us to do. Let's stand it all of God's word. Let's read it together. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to him, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. Winning starts with a good coach and a team that is willing to surrender to that church's, to that coach's, excuse me, philosophy and the plays that he draws up and designs. One without the other will will cause for a, a losing team. If you have an excellent coach that has players that is not willing to surrender to that coach's authority, that team will lose. But if you have a poor leader with a team that is talented, but who does not have a a leader and a coach that they are willing to to, to play to or submit to, uh, that that team, again, will lose. So you need a combination of both. You need a strong coach, a strong leader, one that knows how to 
to work with multiple personalities, one that has a right philosophy, one that draws up the right plays, but you also need the right team. Players who are, are talented and who want to play their role and play hard and who is willing to submit to the leadership of that coach. L knew this. And in 2001, the University of Louisville, because they were serious about winning and they were serious about their basketball program, they called Rick Pitino to be their coach. Rick Pitino was a, a proven leader in the past. And now every year, people come from all over the world to see him coach, and players come from various high schools all over the world to be under his leadership. They adapt to his philosophy. They run his plays. They, they show up the first day with great anticipation to, to hear their coach and to see what they, their coach has to say because he's a proven coach. He's a, a Hall of Fame-bound coach. Rick Latino is the only coach to take two teams to the national championship and win. And he's the only coach, I believe, to take three teams. He took three teams to the Final Four, uh, Providence, University of Kentucky, and a University of Louisville. And just think now, next year when he shows up on campus and when that team comes to play for him, he's going to have all ears. Those teams, the first day of practice, they're going to be sitting there with great anticipation because they're going to say, this is a Hall of Fame coach. This is a man that brought a title to the city. We ought to listen to him. And not only that, they're going to look at him and they're going to say, man, this is a man that's serious about his commitment to the school because he has the scar or the tattoo to prove it. Right? Well, let's take it from the earthly to the spiritual. In this text, we see the greatest leader of all time, not a coach. Jesus is not a coach. Jesus is a Lord. He's a king. We see the greatest leader of all time coming off of the greatest victory of all time. He just defeated death. He rose from the grave. And this, this leader is now calling his disciples to meet him in Galilee. We see that in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So Jesus is, is getting ready to bring his team together. See, a, a team will only go as far as their, their coach will take them. And a church will only go as far as our Lord will take them. And a church will only go as far as the members of that church is willing to submit to the play that the coach draws up or the plan that he has for the church. And we will only be as successful. We will only be a winning church. We will only be winning people of God if we gather around Jesus and know what he has designed the church to do. So Jesus is calling his people, his disciples. The Bible says now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Why are they going to Galilee? In verse chapter 28, verse 10, the word says, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So right after the resurrection, Jesus speaks to the women who were at the tomb, and he says, go and tell my brothers, go and tell the rest of the disciples that I'm going to Galilee, and I want you to meet me there. Now, why Galilee? Why is Galilee so important? In chapter 27, verse 55, we read these words. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, mentoring strength to him. So the Bible says right there that in Galilee, there were many women there looking on while he was being crucified. There are many who followed Jesus in Galilee. Galilee had most is where most of Jesus disciples and supporters were. So Jesus is calling a, 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 a meeting together with his team. And he meets them in Galilee right after the resurrection, some days after the resurrection, because he wants to tell them something. He wants to, to gather them together. Now, it's important that we know in this text that it was probably more than 11 disciples there. 
It was probably more than 11 disciples there. Matthew here keys in on the 11. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how at one time Jesus showed up to over 500 disciples at one time and spoke to them. Many, Paul said at the time, many who are still alive, some who have fallen asleep. Most theologians, when they look at Jesus and, and the times that he showed up after the resurrection, they say this makes sense for, for the time where Jesus would have had most of his disciples gathered. I believe Matthews is keys in on 11 here because he, like he does throughout his book, normally when, when Jesus is saying something to the 11 disciples that's important, he only really focuses on, on the 12, okay? So I think that Matthew wants to focus on the fact that all of the apostles were there. It's not that anybody, that everybody else wasn't there, but the key people were there. Kind of like when you go to a social event and somebody say who was there and you name some specific people. They weren't the only people there, but they were the only people that you care to talk about that was there then. All right? So that's what he's doing here. It's important, and we'll come back later and see why that is important, but it's important that we understand that Jesus is probably appearing to a large, large crowd on a mountain in Galilee, somewhere where people wouldn't recognize, where the authorities wouldn't recognize and know uh, that, that he was there and that gathering was necessarily taking place. So he gives them a specific location. The first thing that we want to know, if we're going to be a winning church that follows the play that our Lord designs, the first thing we have to recognize is Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. I believe that if we are going to be a winning church that follows the Lordship and the, the plan of our Lord, we have to be a church that accepts and surrenders to Jesus's authority. If we don't see and recognize Jesus's authority, we won't run, run his plan the way that we're supposed to do. This text is often called the Great Commission. Commission means command. This text, in this text, we're going to see the central uh, motive, the, the, the central uh, uh, action that the church is to do. We're going to see what God expects from his church and why he left us here after he saved us. Have you ever thought about that? God could have saved us and then taken us right to heaven. But God didn't. And it's because he has a plan, he has a purpose for you, he has a purpose for me, he has a play, so to speak, for us to run. So this is not the great commit. this is called the Great Commission, but unfortunately many people in many churches read this as a great suggestion. We don't, we don't see these words as the central purpose of the church. Instead of seeing this as a commandment, it's like an acute suggestion. And the reason why is because we don't see the authority of Jesus in the way that we are supposed to see the authority of Jesus. Matthew wants us to see Jesus in the way that God calls for us to see him. And there's two things that we see here that, that really emphasize the authority of Jesus. The first is, I think, in verse 16, Matthew giving attention to the location. Matthew says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. To the mountain to which Jesus had. That small detail that they were on a mountain is very important as we read through Matthew's gospel. Why? Because Matthew, whenever Jesus is about to say something really important or give an important discourse, he always tells the location to say that it was on a mountain. And part of the reason why is because Matthew knows his audience. And his audience expected for great prophets and knew that in the past God had done great things through prophets and spoken great words through prophets and met great prophets on a mountain. So God is, is showing these people that Jesus is really greater than the prophets. Just as Moses received a word from Sinai, the church is about to receive a word from Jesus as Lord. And just like the law was important to the Jews, the law, this, this commandment is, is important to the church. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, we see Jesus on a mountain teaching the disciples, and that is a famous sermon, Matthew 5 through 7, that is called uh, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 17, 
We see that on a mountain, Jesus, Jesus on a mountain with, with three of his closest disciples. And on that mountain is what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. This is when Jesus' insides came out and his outsides came in. His glory shone before his disciples. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 25, Matthew makes sure he lets us know that Jesus was on a mountain, the Mount of Olives, and he was giving a prophetic word about the future. And then in Matthew chapter 27, verse 33, we read that Jesus is taken from the valley, so to speak, to the mountain to die on a hill called Golgotha, a.k.a. Calvary. He is letting us know that what is about to happen on this mountain is very important because the person that is about to speak is great. And then we see it continues. Verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Look at what Jesus does. The resurrected Jesus, the one who has tattoos proving his love for his church. Rick wasn't the first person to do that. Jesus was like, I got tatted up for y'all. Look at my wounds. He stands before his church, and what does he say? Hey, guys, I'm, I'm happy to see you. No, he says all authority, all power is in my hands. Why? And I'm sure this was a, a longer sermon. The Bible says in Luke, we read Luke chapter 24, that Jesus came back and he was teaching the disciples, uh, opening up the Old Testament to the disciples and showing how everything in the old uh, talks about him. Um, they probably was on this mountain for a very long time, but Matthew chooses to summarize what Jesus said, and he makes sure that they get and that we understand that Jesus declared that he had all authority. All authority. If we're going to be a winning church, Jesus must be our authority. In every single one of our individual lives, Jesus has to be our authority. Not Nuke Nuke and Bebe. Not, not social consensus. What, what everybody else is saying, or the way that culture is going. Not my own thoughts, and my own reasoning, and my own common sense. No, what is my authority is what Jesus says. It may feel good, it may seem good, it may seem logical to me, but if God's word does not say it is the way to go, I'm, it's not the way to go. Jesus' authority must be our authority, just like Rick Pitino must be the authority figure when he stands before those 12 men on a team. Jesus must be the authority figure of the church, but even to a greater extent. And I believe that, that Matthew is trying to show us this, and he's trying to key in on this, this issue of authority. Why does Jesus have all authority? Two reasons. Number one, because he is God. He said all authority, not some authority. Moses had some authority, but Jesus has all authority. Elijah had some authority, but Jesus had all authority because he's fully God. Number two, reason that we see that Jesus has all authority is because he just conquered death and he was obedient to the Father. All throughout the New Testament, there's emphasis about Jesus's authority. All throughout we see, from, from, from even from the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 7, we see Daniel seeing a prophetic vision of a man, a man who is ruling the world, who, who is given dominion over every nation by God. In the New Testament, we see over 20 verses pointing to the, the, the full authority or leadership of Jesus. We see verses like uh, uh, John chapter 17, verse 2 through 3. This is what Jesus said. Father, the hour has come right before the cross. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him all authority over all flesh. We see Paul saying the same thing in Romans chapter 4, verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Why? That he might have all authority or be Lord over both the dead and the living. We see that in Colossians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, the lordship, the authority of Jesus. Jesus is the authority because Jesus is the very author of life, A-U-T-H-O-R, author, authority, 
I-T-Y. Authority is given to Jesus because he is the author. He's the one who created everything, sustains everything. Everything runs through him, by him, and is created in him. He is holding all things together. All matter, all mass, subatomic level, or anything that you can see. Mountains, valleys, mosquitoes held together by Jesus. Grass don't move without Jesus saying move. The Bible says when somebody is shooting craps or rolling a dice, that Jesus, God, is the one who determines how it's going to fall. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Zip, zero, nada, 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 nada. Nothing moves without Jesus saying move. When I move, you move just like that. Jesus is the one who is in complete control. Nuke Nuke is not in control. Obama is not in control. Whoever you want to put in the blank is not in control. Jesus said, all, all, everything, everything is in my power. Authority is given to me, he said. Because I conquered death. Where he said, y'all don't understand, I'm a bad man. We're in the city of Ali, right? I'm a bad man. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? And let me tell you something. The sooner we recognize that Jesus runs it, the better our life will be. When you recognize that Jesus is in control, when you recognize his lordship, you you, you got a certain peace about you because you understand if something has happened to me, it is because it has passed his sovereign desk. No matter how good or how bad it is. And even though I can't trace him at the moment, I can trust him because I know that all things are working together for his glory and my good. All authority is given to me. Now, it's one thing for a person to have all authority. And we see dictators with all, with, they declare that they're the sovereign ruler of a land or a nation. But as, as the great the, the philosopher says, you know, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely because human beings cannot, cannot control that, that, that the power that they have without being lifted up in pride or being arrogant uh, except for the grace of God. But, but Jesus, who is perfect, does not have that temptation to rule in a way that is sin- sinful because he, everything in him is good. That's why Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 says of Jesus when he comes back, John said, I saw someone who was riding on a white horse and his name was he was faithful and true and in righteousness he judges all. So the one that we trust, the one that declares all authority is given in his hand is the one who is faithful, the one who is true and the one who will never fail. Jesus is the church's authority. And we need to understand that because the plan, what he's about to say to us, what he's about to say to us is our mission. It's our identity. If we fail to do what verse 19 says, we fail as a church. So how do we know if we are a winning church or a losing church? is by whether or not our lives, our, our ministries, and our people are all pointing to do this. What is the church's assignment? What has God created us and saved us for? Is it to be individuals? And to live our own lives, casually interacting with other church folk. Is it to do our best to just make it into heaven? Do our best just to get by? Or is it something greater? Look at the great assignment that we have as a church. Go therefore. Go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always at the end of age. It's late in the game. It's late in the game. Jesus is getting ready to go to the Father. He says, this is the play. I need you guys to go out and execute on the court. This is the play. What is the play? to make disciples. It's to make disciples. 
The play is to make disciples. Now, when we look at what this says, we, 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 we want to see a, a, a number of different things. The first thing we want to see is, is we want to understand what, what a disciple is. If we're going to make something, we have to understand what it is. And in the most broadest sense, a disciple is a follower or a learner. Back then, if someone wanted to learn from a a specific teacher, what they would do is they would approach that teacher and they would simply just start following him. And they would follow this person because they saw that that this person had some great knowledge or wisdom or they saw the way that they lived their life. So so they would sit at the foot of that, that, that leader and wait for that leader to teach them lessons and to show them how to live. They would enjoy the presence of that person and they would would stay in that person's presence because they wanted to be like them. So what is a disciple? When we look at it in our context, as as Forest Baptist Church, this is the way that, that I hope in the future that we will define a disciple. A disciple is a person who pursues and enjoys the presence of God with an obedient heart. And you can find this on your worksheet, uh, in your bulletins. You can fill in that blank. What is a disciple? A disciple is a person who pursues and enjoys the presence of God with an obedient heart. They are pursuing the presence of Jesus. They are enjoying his presence more day by day. They are learning of him with an obedient heart. So Jesus says, church, I need you to go into the world and I need you to to make your main focus to be to make disciples. Your main focus needs to be to, 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 to love me in such a way, to enjoy my presence in such a way, to pursue me in such a way with an obedient heart that other people want to do the same. So you go and you teach people to enjoy my presence. You teach people to, 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 to come to me with an obedient heart. But before we can make a disciple, we have to be a disciple. Only a disciple can make a disciple. Only a person who loves the presence of Jesus and enjoys it with an obedient heart can go into the world and make it. If you are a devil, you will make a disciple that looks like the devil. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Ouch. Parents, if you cuss at home, you can't get on your kids for cursing when they're at school. You're discipling your children. Only a disciple can truly make a disciple. Only a disciple can truly make a disciple. So how do we make disciples? Disciples. In this text, there is only one command, one true command, and that's to make disciples. We have three participles here which modify or support the main verb. The main verb here is make disciples. So we see in verse 19, go therefore, and then we see baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we see teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So those three things, going, baptizing, and teaching all modify or point to the main verb to make disciples. So how do we make disciples? So we make disciples by doing those three things, by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. The way in which we go into the world to to call people to, to know Jesus and to teach them to live and be like Jesus is by going. It's not just go like one time. It's it's literally agree in your going. In your everyday life, make disciples. Sometimes we we think of uh, Christians, some some more important Christians or some super spiritual Christians, and there's less spiritual Christians, and and super spiritual Christians are those who are supposed to teach and those who are supposed to preach and those who are supposed to do all these great things for the church. But everyone else who's not a a super Christian, they're just supposed to kind of live their life sitting in a pew, coming to church, singing Jesus, singing about Jesus every now and then. But that's not what the Bible says. On this mountain, there's over 500 people, and all of them are receiving this command to make disciples. Jesus is saying, if you are my disciple, if you have new life, if you love me, you are called, you have been set apart in order to go out into the world and tell people about me and then help them to to enjoy my presence with an obedient heart. You are, if you are a Christian, you are called to make disciples of Jesus. 
In order to be a, make a disciple, you have to be a disciple of Jesus. You have to pursue Jesus and enjoy him with an obedient heart. You have to had, have already repented of your sins and put your trust in the one who died for you and who was resurrected from the grave. The Bible says that there were two types of people in the midst of this crowd. There were true disciples. Those true disciples, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped Jesus. Why? They were amazed at Jesus when they saw him. They said, wow, you conquered death. I am going to worship you. I am going to subscribe supreme worth to you. You now are the most important thing in my life. Yes, I may love my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, but you, Jesus, you are set apart. I am going to worship you. And then the Bible says in the same crowd, 500, there with those who the Bible says some doubted. That's why I said I believe it was more than 11 because the 11 that was there went out in the book of Acts and we see them on mission for the Lord. But there was some in that 500 that were just there to be there. And when they saw Jesus, even though they saw the nail stretched arms and and even though they saw him in, in a glorious way, the Bible says they still doubted. Why did they still doubt? Because they wanted to doubt. Because they wanted to be the L-O-R-D of their life, the Lord of their life. A disciple is a person who worships, who adores, who who magnifies God with their life, even though they're broken, even though they're afraid, even though they're scared. Jesus is the one that they are living for. They were before Jesus, fear and trembling, running away, hiding, trying to go to see this man who is supposed to be resurrected. They weren't strong. They weren't philosophers. These were not the noble people of the world. These were the broken people of the world, ex-fishermen, ex-strippers, ex-everything. And they were there because they heard that Jesus was alive. A disciple is a person who wants to see Jesus and who wants other people to see Jesus. Want other people to see Jesus. So in their going, they're fishing. That's your job. In your going, make a disciple. While you're at home, of your children, you make a disciple. When you're in the mall, you enter the mall as an ambassador of Jesus. Fishing. Looking for somebody that's broken. Looking for somebody that wants to talk to you. Looking for somebody that just seems like they, they're in a, a conversing mood. Praying while you're walking through J.C. Penney, saying, Lord, if you want me to talk to somebody, if you want me to tell somebody about Jesus, just show me where to go, how to do it, and how to get there, and I'm there. In your going. It's natural. Just like it's natural to talk about U of L. It's natural. You didn't have to think about it. You didn't have to calculate who you were talking to. You didn't have to know all the details. Oh, did you see the game last night? In your going. But, but in my going, what am I doing? Baptizing. Now, why did he use the word baptize? Why did he use the word baptize? I believe that more is here in this verse, that, that here he's telling us what we are to be doing when we go. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. This is our Lord. This is our leader giving us his, the play. What we see in Luke's gospel, in Luke's gospel, we see when, when, when Luke is, is, is talking about Jesus and, and what he had to say when he came back, Luke goes on and he says similar words, except he adds the word that the words that we are preaching, a message of forgiveness. In, in Mark's gospel, we see that Mark does the same thing. He says, go and preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel to all nations. When Matthew uses the word baptize, he is summing up the message that we are to take to people. See, baptism represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Sister Tiffany and Brother Devante was baptized today, what they were doing is they were saying, hey, church, I identify with Jesus. I believe that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he rose again for me. And I believe that I now am dying to myself. And my sins are being buried. The the penalty of my sins are now being buried. And when I rise, I am rising a new person, a new creation in Christ. So what does he say? He's saying, in your going, preach, uh, preach the gospel. 
preach the gospel. And when someone hears the gospel and repents of their sins and is forgiven by God, you baptize them, you bring them before other believers and you say, look, this is our brother, this is our sister, let's celebrate. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, name of the Son, name of the Holy Spirit. You baptize them in a, into a, a triune God. Now notice what it says here. It says in the name, not in the names. When people talk about there's no trinity and, or, or, or God is one, but he shows himself up in three, uh, uh, he's one God, but he shows himself up in different ways and different modes. You say, no, the Bible says in the name, one God, one name manifested or standing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We make a disciple who is Trinitarian, who understands who God is. But then he says teaching, teaching. Teaching, and what are we teaching people to do? We're teaching people to be worshipers of Jesus. He says, teaching, look at your Bibles, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So these disciples were with Jesus day in and day out. And they were ordinary people. These were some rough men. We think about the disciples sometimes, and we see these pictures of them, right? And they're fishing. And they look all sensitive, and they like, you know, and they all thin and neatly shaved. No, these were the manliest men of Galilee. They weren't proper. They talked the hood language. (laughs) Greek scholars say if you really try to read the book of Peter, you'll see that he wasn't a great writer and he didn't speak a great language. He was an ordinary man who God used. But they lived at the feet of Jesus. Acts chapter 4 says that. Acts chapter 4 talks about how how people looked at the disciples and they said, man, who are these people? They have not been properly educated, but yet really they have all this wisdom. It's because they were at the feet of Jesus. Because they allowed Jesus to teach them. And a disciple is a person who allows Jesus to teach them through the word. They pursue the presence of Jesus and they enjoy it with an obedient heart. With an obedient heart. So to make a disciple is to live life very intentional. As we go about our everyday, we are looking to be used by God, not waiting for some divine message to come across the sky. Tell this person about Jesus. No, we are jumping. Remember jump rope, double dutch? Y'all remember double dutch? You know, had sisters and cousins. I was the only boy for a long time, right? And they tried to teach me how to double dutch. I couldn't do it. I mean, I got hit in the face like a couple times. I was like, I'm done, right? But double dutch, you just kind of wait for the opportunity to jump in. That's what it means. You're living your life waiting for that opportunity, for that moment to tell people about the most important person in your life, J-E-S-U-S. Unfortunately, we often are distracted from running the play that Jesus has called us to run. Time Magazine just came out with an article. It's called The Me, Me, Me Generation. It did surveys and studies about uh, the millennial generation. And there, it was staggering statistics. Crazy article just talking about in these surveys how it just revealed how self-centered young adults are. Because this, this, the world now is just, just all about them and social media and how selfish it is. We, we're distracted. Some of us are distracted from running the play of Jesus because life is all about us. Yo, any of you ever play sports or watch sports and you see a guy out there ball hogging and the team is suffering? you like, you just shot five times in a row and missed. But he think he's Jordan out there. And everybody else is like, man, what are you doing? Run the play. Hey, 
The reason I think that, that the church, and the reason why I think that sometimes Forest Baptist Church, that we fail to, we're failing to, to, to make disciples of Newburgh in a way that God will want us to be is because it's about us. Our days, thoughts revolve around our comforts, our homes, our joys, our pleasure, and not about the play that he told us to, to, to run. Then on some teams, you, you see the person who is constantly distracted by the fans. He's playing for his girlfriend or trying to get a cheerleader to pay attention to them. Sometimes we fail to run a play because someone else has our attention and our affection. Some of us and some some teams we see, they're failing to run the play that the, the coach told them to run because they're lazy. Lazy person really doesn't get playing time, does do they? You know? Patino will bench a lazy player. You know that moment when you see on TV when someone does something silly or doesn't hustle and you see the coach like. (laughs) Right? Not playing for the team, not running the play that was designed. That's how some of our lives are. Jesus has given us a play. Teach people about me. Present the good news. Tell them that I have risen from the dead. Talk to them about how you enjoy the presence of a living God. And tell them how you have learned over time and you're learning to have an obedient heart and to run the coach's play. Some, some people and some teams just don't do well because they just do too much. They're just trying to do too much. My coach used to tell me that all the time. Well, you're just trying to do too much. You can't guard everybody on the court. Stick to your man. Right? Like, I did not call you the double team. Stick to him. But sometimes in church, we can... As individuals, we think that, hey, I'm doing what God wants me to do because I'm on every committee and I'm involved in every church activity. It's beautiful to be involved in church. It's beautiful to give yourself selflessly to the body of Christ. But God has saved you, not so that everything you do will be inward, but he's also saved you so that you can reach out to the world around you. Do you know your neighbor's name? Do you sit and and spend time with those who are on your block? Some of us are like, yeah, I want to, but I'm just always running, always doing this, always doing that. Our job is to to not only to build up ourselves inwardly, but it's, it's to reach out externally. And Jesus said, go and make disciples. Engage this lost world and tell them about me. So for some of us, Running this plan or fulfilling this assignment may mean looking at our schedule and and saying, I need to be intentional about building relationships with people around me that's lost, coworkers that's lost. When you go into your job on Monday, I pray that you will go as an ambassador of Jesus with your antennas up saying, I want this lost coworker to know Jesus. Touch your neighbor and say, run the play. Run the play. As a church, we have, to, we have to not be lazy. We have to pray that the Lord will give us the grace to run this play. Some of us, we think of Christianity like auditing a class. If a person audits a class, what they do, what that means is they sit in a class and they either pay half amount or don't, they don't pay, pay anything for the class, but they audit the class. They sit in the class and they learn information but they don't have to do homework. They have no responsibility at the end of the class. 
So they just come, they soak up the information, they go and they hide it, and every now and then they show off what they know because they audit the class. But that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not auditing a class. No, we come to church as learners. We go to Bible study as learners. We read our word throughout the week as learners, not so that we can just know, but so that we can share with others and draw others to Jesus. The Lord desires for us to be disciples and to make disciples. And there's all kind of forms of discipleship. At Forest, I think that we do uh, a couple of forms really well. Number one, that's the, the one-to-many form. Right now, you guys are, are being a disciple if you are in the presence of God and, and seeking to enjoy him with an obedient heart. As you listen to the word, you are going through discipleship. One person is speaking to many, whether it's myself or one of the other pastors. That's one form. And then you got one on several, where it's one person speaking to several people in a small group. Maybe that's like a Sunday school, or we see that on Bible study. And I think we do a good job at that. But where we need to grow as a church is we need to grow in a one-on-one manner. How many of you have ever had a person in your life that you sat down with regularly? who taught you the Bible, and who challenged you to grow in your faith one-on-one. It's okay. If not, it's all right. Anyone. Ever had someone regularly who just walked with you, who called you, who checked up on you, who held you accountable for your Christian life? And that's so true in so many churches. But when we see what a disciple is biblically, A disciple is not one who just comes to the masses. It's one who is sitting down with people regularly learning the faith. And that's what Jesus is calling them to. Look at what he says. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we see in the book of Acts, the apostles and the leaders sitting down with people one-on-one in order to teach them the way or to teach them about Christianity. Some of us, the reason why our lives are, and we're kind of just entangled in the same type of sin for years is because we have no one in our life who can call us out on that sin. And we don't allow people to get close enough to us to to tell us, hey, this is wrong. God has a better way. Here's how you get free. I'm praying that for us 20 years from now, when that question is answered, we have a congregation of people who raises their hand, who says, I reached out to someone and I said, I need to grow in my faith. Will you be my accountability partner? I've said it before. I think a a healthy way to think about the Christian life, this is not a law, but a healthy way to think about it is, is everybody needs two or three people that they are looking up to. Two or three people that they they see the way they are as a Christian and they they say, man, I want to be that way. And they reach out to them. They may not talk to them every day, but they have their number when they're struggling with sin or struggling with something in life, they can call them. And that person is then making an imprint on their lives. And I believe that every Christian needs at least two or three peers who's around the same area of of spirituality with them that they can call on and support and encourage each other, friends that love Jesus too, that's growing in the process. But I believe every Christian who has been saved for, for some time and who is committed to a local church also should be looking back to help out two or three people. Saying, hey, these two people, we've just got two or three people who were just baptized. And I know that this Christian walk is hard, and I don't know everything. In fact, I maybe can can quote five to ten verses, but I know Jesus has brought me a long way, and I'm growing. And I just want to be in this person's life and be a support to help them and encourage them as they grow. That's discipleship. Look at a basketball team. That's how basketball players grow. Basketball teams have multiple coaches, multiple coaches who's teaching different things. The center, the big man, he's posting up and doing great moves down low, but he has a coach on that team who is the post player's coach. And in practice, he's teaching them certain moves and certain ways to get to the rim, and he's seeing their weaknesses, and he's saying, man, you keep dipping left, you need to go right first and then dip left. But he's coaching them. He's advising them. Listen, we all need that in our lives, and I pray that this will be that type of church. A good uh, friend of mine says, if, as it said to his congregation, I think it's so good, he said, listen, when this church becomes a church that I cannot fall apart in, I'm leaving. 
The church is a place where we can fall apart in front of each other because we know that we have each other's good in mind. When this becomes a place where we cannot share our weaknesses, where we cannot sin and then just repent and move on from it, this is a place that I don't want to pastor. Church is a place where we don't judge each other and point fingers and try to condemn each other, but when we come alongside each other and we love each other and we disciple each other. We disciple each other. When we think about the church, we have to think about accountability. We have to think about caring about the person alongside us. Phil Jackson just came out with a book called Eleven. Uh, great coach, of course, of the Bulls and of the Lakers. And he's talking about his 11 championship rings. And he was recently in, I believe it was Time Magazine, and he was asked this question in regards to his book. What do you mean when you write that the critical ingredient for a championship is love? This is what he says. I know teams that get along well, they party together, but they're not about the sharing and the deep care that you have to be in order to be a team. You have to protect each other. You have to cover the other person's butt when he's getting beat offensively. You have to know how to deliver the ball so that people can get a good shot. You have to move outside yourself and think about others. That's the church. That's discipleship. Learning each other's weaknesses, learning each other's strengths, knowing where to throw the ball so that the other person can catch it and make the shot. That's discipleship. In a nutshell, discipleship is loving your neighbor as yourself. What is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, your soul. And it's to love your neighbor as yourself. You are loving those around you by sharing the best thing that ever happened to you. Loving your neighbor is sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with people you come in contact because you want to see their lives transformed and you want to see them have a peace that passeth all understanding. That's discipleship. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Third point, we'll fly through this real quick. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. On that mountain, the last first thing we see is, is Jesus' authority. Then we see the church's assignment, and finally we see Jesus' assurance. Some of us are like, man, I don't know where to start. I'm afraid. I don't know enough about the Bible. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. What if someone asks me the wrong question? All of us have those fears. None of us are smart enough. None of us are good enough. What makes us disciples of Jesus is not our righteousness. It's his righteousness. None of us, I am incompetent, I am unable. Nothing, I'm not standing before you because I've got it all together or because I'm a great Christian. I'm standing before you because God takes great delight in using weak people to preach a great message. But by God's grace, I'm standing before you with Jesus' assurance that in my fear, in my trembling, in my weakness, God's power is made perfect in strength. And he says, I'm with you. He says, go, lo, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. As you're going in, you're going, know that the presence of Jesus is indwelling. The Holy Spirit is inside of you, helping you. And that's, the book of Acts is so amazing. The book of Acts is so amazing. We see in Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, a weak church, regular people, who once they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they go out and they preach the gospel and people are getting saved left and right. And people's lives are being changed. And this small cult, cult that Rome called it, this small, small cult of 500 people is spreading like wildfire. And we are here today because weak people believe that Jesus was with them. Literally inside of them. Working. Indwelling. Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job we talked about is to champion Jesus, to show off Jesus. When we are enjoying the presence of Jesus with an obedient heart, the Holy Spirit gets stirred up and he begins to allow you to just overflow. And life becomes about Jesus and not about us. Here's the keys 
the keys to be a disciple is to be available. Be available. They heard that Jesus was in Galilee and they made themselves available. Number two, be teachable. They came to the mountain and some worshipped and they kept going forward with a teachable heart, not a pharisaical heart that was constantly trying to grade everything that everyone says or do. They were at the feet of Jesus as a learner. Number three, live with adoration. Live in awe of God's grace. Constantly remind yourself that you once were dead in your sins, headed to hell, and the God of this universe healed you from depression, healed you from yourself, and gave you new life. Number four, be intentional. A disciple is a person who is intentional about sharing the gospel, about sharing the gospel. It may take time. You have to use wisdom. You just don't blurt out and scare people away. But be relational. Get to know your coworkers. Get to know your friends. I've, and I'm not saying this to brag on myself at all. This is an area that I definitely want to grow. After becoming a pastor, I saw myself going more inward, constantly thinking and, and working, of course, to, to better the church. And what I found myself is, is, is not sharing the gospel and being intentional about the loss that was around me because I was so focused about inward things. And the Lord began to convict me and my wife about making sure we're intentional when we're out. And there's a guy at the coffee shop that I, I, I go to, and, and me and him, we, we talked about two years ago, had a great conversation. He's normally there when I'm there in the morning. That's why I, I like to study and prepare. And, and we normally just say hi and bye, but I've just been praying, Lord, give me the wisdom to approach him. He's from Iran. He's, he's Islamic. But by God's grace, God finally recently just opened up the door and we began to talk and it started with our children. And before I know it, he was standing telling me his life story in 45 minutes. And I said, hey, man, would, would, I would love for you and your wife and your son to come over to my house. And my wife loves to cook. Would you be willing to have a meal with us? And maybe we can build a relationship. I said, yes. Here's my number. I'm expecting you to call soon. We're fishermen. We got the line out. We got the bait out. We can't save anybody. God saves them. Paul said, I planted the seed, Apollo's water, but God gave the increase. A preacher can't save anybody. It's God who does it. You could be the most poetic person in the world, and you could be a person who stumbles and stutters and who has, doesn't have confidence when he speaks like Moses, but when the Spirit of God wants to move, and when you make yourself available to be a clean vessel to the Lord, he'll work. If we fail to make disciples, we fail as a church. Christianity without discipleship is not Christianity. I'm calling you to enjoy me in this great endeavor. What a play. What an endeavor to make disciples undiscriminately to, with all disciples, to go into the end of the world, to use our talents to reach people everywhere. What a great call. For the person who is unsaved here today, who doesn't know Jesus and who doesn't have a relationship with him, I want you to listen. Jesus cares about you so much that he made the main assignment of the church to be to come after you. Jesus loves you so much that he made the main assignment of the church to pursue you and to tell you about Jesus. That's love. I don't care what you are wrapped in. I don't care how what you did last night, how low you feel, how, how dirty you feel, what you believed in the past. God cared enough about you to unleash his people to come and get you. He cared enough about you to allow his only son to die for you. The U University of Louisville players played their heart out for Rick Pitino. And they played their heart out for a coach who made mistakes, who called the wrong play. They played their heart out for someone who was imperfect. Watch the interview with Peyton Siva, and he talked about how 
he would not undo anything that happened at the University of Louisville and how he would rather play for no coach in the entire world than Rick Pitino. And that's with Rick Pitino's flaws. Rick Pitino has flaws like we all have flaws, but he played his heart out every day for his coach, for his community, and for his team. If, that, if they can do that for a flawed man, how much more should the church dedicate their lives' mission to make disciples, to run the play, to do the plan that a perfect man set out. How much more should we give ourselves to others? Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for your resurrected son. In Jesus' name, amen.